Hello and welcome to the Wordful Woman podcast. I'm Christina, your host, and my guests are people who operate at the intersection of science and spirituality. It is my great pleasure today to speak with Dr. Adam Rizvi. Welcome to the show, Adam. So good to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Dear listeners, Dr. Adam Rizvi has spent his life pursuing a unique combination of medicine and spirituality. He is an MD physician with specialty training in neurology and critical care medicine, a board-certified neurologist, and a co-founder of the Rizvi Brain Institute, or RBI, a family-run clinic of expert healthcare professionals dedicated to reversing cognitive decline and helping people attain optimal cognitive performance. Adam's education includes a neurology residency at the University of Minnesota and a fellowship in neurocritical care at Stanford University, as well as a comparative religion major from the University of Rochester, New York. In addition to his professional medical background and university education, Adam has studied with spiritual masters from several of the world's mystical traditions and dedicates himself to a daily spiritual practice and an ongoing study of ancient and modern philosophical teachings from around the world. This unique combination of life experiences, professional practice, and studies informs Adam's approach to treating patients and infuses his work and teachings with a wisdom that comes from personal spiritual experience and growth. Due to his work in critical care, Dr. Rizvi has been at the bedside of what he estimates as more than 1,000 patients at the moment of their death, offering him a unique perspective on death, the process of dying, and its significance. Adam's passion is to help us remember what it is to be whole and to know that we are innately perfect, as this redefines our approach to health and healing. Adam, I'm sure our listeners would love to know, how did you come to blend medicine and spirituality in your professional life? What were the main chapters of this journey? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much, Christina. It's it's a joy to be on this show, on the podcast, and I want to commend you for your efforts to bring all the amazing speakers that you have on your show. I think this idea of blending science and spirituality is so important. And I think it it dovetails nicely to to my journey because we often think science and spirituality are two separate things. And there's this need to bring them together because ostensibly we think that they're very different. Uh, in, In a similar way, my life, you could say, medicine or healing is separate from my spiritual path and spiritual journey. And one of the biggest themes of my life was realizing, no, those two things are one and the same. And for people who have gone through really difficult challenges as it pertains to their body and their physical health, they'll realize that the journey of healing is totally a journey in spirit. Uh, a spiritual journey where they learn more about themselves and and about their their loved ones and i'd say between those two things the the spiritual journey for me is what started first i my drive to understanding myself my role in this world uh who we are how do we get here where we're going those you know the big questions and then when i started to discover medicine and healing more and walking that road, I realized, oh, it's not two separate things. It's really the same 
the same journey. I'm walking the same path. It just happens to have a different name depending on the context. Uh, so when walking along this journey, what I'm, I'm sure you gathered a lot of very interesting insights. What would you say were the most important insights that you gained from exploring this particular combination? Yeah, uh, good question. I would say, well, that's one. The main insight is that the path to healing is a spiritual path. Uh, and vice versa, the spiritual path is a path to healing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the etymology of the word he to heal or healing, it comes from the meaning uh, whole, to be whole or wholeness. And so in many ways, this idea, the spiritual journey is really a journey towards wholeness. Uh, and the healing journey is a journey from the appearance of being broken uh, to the remembrance that, oh, it was never, I was never broken. I was whole all along. And then you remember that and you own it. Um, and then you start to live from that space. I would say that's probably the single most biggest insight I've had in my journey, that those two paths are the same. There is something that I would like to ask you here, because, you know, upon listening to you and, you know, looking through your website, I, I found myself, you know, like going into the heart, I was like, yes, I totally agree. And then going into the mind, I encountered a little bit of resistance, uh, specifically about the concept of, you know, that ultimately, as you say, th there is nothing wrong with us. Um, and, you know, like my critical mind kicked in and then it was wondering, well, how could that be? Because on one level, I get it. But then again, you know, we're all imperfect. You know, that 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 is on some level uh, at least true. And some people even end up committing horrible acts during their lives. So how do we end up, how do we reconcile these, these truths at the end of the day? That's a really good question. You know, it actually just occurred to me now that just in your questioning, you can see how quickly this conversation around healing turns metaphysical and turns philosophical even, mm -hmm. right? There, it goes qu very quickly into that space. Um, so I guess it's a matter of definition about what, what is perfection. And I actually agree with you. I think this world is beautifully imperfect or perfectly imperfect, right? Uh, what matters is how do we relate to that imperfection, quote unquote imperfection, right? Um, if someone looks at their body and maybe there's something asymmetric about your face, for example, you can consider that something unique about yourself and you own it and you love it. And that's something special about you. Or you could say, Oh, that makes me look ugly. I don't, I don't like that. And you'll judge yourself for it and you'll feel guilty or you feel bad and, and you'll want to change it. Maybe go do plastic surgery or something to try to fix what's wrong with your face. Right. I'm giving that kind of example to share it's not really the thing, it's how you relate to that thing. Um, and another story that I think I'd like to share that illustrates the point is one of my patients. I had a patient several years ago who came into the hospital with uh, 
metastatic breast cancer. Um, her name was Alice. She, she knew she had breast cancer and was working to try to, to treat it with chemotherapy, but it was too aggressive. She was having some difficulty breathing and came to the hospital. When I scanned her, we realized it had spread everywhere to her lungs, which was causing her difficulty breathing, but also to her abdomen, her pelvis, and to her brain. And I remember we had a series of conversations over the course of maybe six to seven days to share with her, you know, this might be it. No matter what we do, we, we won't be able to come back from how bad this is. And it was a great moment for us, Alice and I, to really talk about mortality and death and talk about what matters in life and what she cares about. And I remember that she, at the beginning of her time with us, she said she felt broken, that her body had betrayed her. She wanted to live more of life, but she felt like her body was riddled with disease and it, and, and it was just broken. It wasn't working and she wanted to fix it, but she knew maybe it was too late to do that. And I wanted to share that with you because in this sense, you can kind of see her mindset is very similar to the mindset of most of us when something goes wrong with our body and not just our body, it could be our psyche, right? Like people who have psychiatric disorders, something goes wrong and it's easy to label that as broken, right? And then the, and the natural consequence is, okay, I need to fix what's broken. And there's someone out there, doctor, medicine, surgery, uh, there's something out there that will fix what's broken in here. And, and we're putting our control out in the world so that that thing that we decide is gonna be the thing that fixes us. Whereas Alice, over the course of a couple of days, she slowly started to realize, yeah, this is it. I'm going to be, I'm going to be passing on now. And she came to terms with that and recognized that she, there were many things she was grateful for in life. And I remember the day before she passed away, we were, we were sitting and I, I, shared with her, I said, Alice, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, right? You're not broken. You're not broken. And there's nothing that needs to be fixed. And if you were with me in that moment, you could see the truth in that statement. Because Alice, Alice looked at me, she nodded her head, she had a mask on to help her breathe. But she nodded her head. And there was a look in her face where you could tell she got it. That even though her body had cancer, and was riddled with these lesions, she knew that who she was, like the, the, the person of Alice, was strong and courageous and beautiful and, and filled with light and filled with love. And on that level, there's nothing wrong with her. And she didn't need to be fixed. And that to me is a powerful realization. And that to me is what real healing is, is when we start to go to that place of who we really are and own and recognize, oh, there's actually nothing wrong with me on a deep, deep level. And that's, for me, what healing is about. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And as, as you were sharing, um, 
you know, it made me realize that what you told Alice, like in her last moments, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, and she understood. You know, it's you can't make sense of that um, if you see yourself as just the body, and that is in fact what like most people, like like at least in Western society, believe that we are just this body, and when the body dies, we die. Um, and that's it. And that seems to be the dominant paradigm, um, in medicine as well. So what has been your personal experience, um, with this in your practice or your education? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big question. I, I feel like if, if you, if one believes that all they are is the body, there are several uh, consequences to that train of thought. Um, one of the consequences is when the body breaks down or there's something wrong with the body, that means there's something wrong with me. When the body needs to be fixed, that means I need to be fixed. Psychologically, that can be a little, um, that can be quite challenging to say I'm broken or, uh, or there's something wrong with me. People who have who are born with congenital defects, people who are born with uh, uh, essentially deficits with their with their physical body, they truly believe that it reflects on who they are as a person instead of distinguishing that. Uh, and you can see people who actually do struggle with that. It causes a lot of psychological harm and challenge. Uh, when people get made fun of based on their looks they're being judged on their body and yet they internalize it and they think that it reflects on who they are. You start to see all the ways in society where identification with the body ends up becoming um, a, a pain, a struggle, a challenge. The whole anti-aging movement, the, the use of cosmetics and Botox, I mean, there's nothing wrong with people who choose to do that, um, but if it comes from a place of fear like I'm, my body is aging, therefore I'm changing in a negative way and I need to stop it from happening. There's a, a tremendous fear in that. And then the deepest consequence to that belief that I am the body uh, comes in the primordial fear of death. Mm -hmm. We are unwilling to face our own mortality because it means that I will cease to exist. And that's absolutely terrifying. So I think if we're able to transition as a culture out of that belief and acknowledge that there may be more to who we are than, than the physical, I think there are some really powerful benefits to making that transition collectively. What would you say for you was the key moment or the key moments or insights, ideas that... Um, made you more convinced that we are more than our bodies and there's potentially more after death rather than the dominant paradigm of this is it, we are our bodies and there is essentially nothing um, of our identity that survives that. Yeah, it's interesting. I would say, well, first, I would probably question the, the statement that the dominant paradigm is that um, all we are is the body. If you take the entire popu world population, I would say the 
I actually don't know for sure, but I would hazard a guess that the majority believe there's some form of afterlife. Uh, and I would probably think that that's the dominant uh, perspective. But from a scientific perspective, I think Western science, that you're right, that is the dominant uh, perspective. Um, for me, I was raised in a, a Muslim household and a Catholic household. My mother came from a Catholic tradition and my father came from a Muslim tradition. So the religious background that I was raised in told me there's something after you die. But that's just a belief system. It doesn't actually mean it's true. For me, one of the most powerful sources of empiric evidence is one's own experience. And I know as a scientist, that may be uh, a bit of a contrarian perspective, but I know many well-respected scientists that will say you need to take your own experience into consideration. I had several experiences uh, in my early teenage years of essentially having an out-of-body experience um, where I would wake up, if you will, or, or come to the realization that I was floating above my physical body. And uh, those experiences left me with zero doubt that there is an aspect to my mind, to, the, to my consciousness, that is independent of my physical body. Uh, and I could go more in depth into some of those experiences, but those initial experiences were what sealed the deal for me. Uh, I'd love to go more into your experiences. And before that, let's let's hone in on this idea of, so first of all, thank you for pointing out that the worldwide dominant paradigm may not actually be that materialistic one of we are just the body. Um, indeed, this, I was referring to Western science dominant paradigm. I, I, sh I should have made that more clear. So thank you for that. Um, I, I find it very intriguing what you say about the idea of direct experience and the direct experience being ultimately what what pushed you more into this way of seeing the world um because i think we are we do have this misconception of the scientific view being that of looking outside for evidence not so much to your internal experience um but for one i, I feel that's changing um and i i always like to think that you know, when you think about the scientific method, which is how we acquire scientific knowledge, it starts with an observation. So why not an observation of your own experience? Um, yeah, it's... Yeah. So I'm very... I'm, I, you, I'm so happy you brought this up. the choir. I absolutely agree. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up because I think this you saying this also gives um, a lot of people permission to pay more attention to their own experiences and maybe to trust their experiences more. Um, and here, you know, the critical mind again kicks in and says, well, to what extent can we trust our experiences? To what extent can we trust our own perceptions? Um, because it is true, we do have, our perception is limited um, in many ways. So I feel part of this journey of discovery is also balancing that. Um, do you have any ideas yeah. around this? I'm not quite sure how to approach it, to be honest. That's a good question. Um, we do know that there are elements to our perception that are heavily influenced um, 
by external factors. We, we all have certain cognitive biases that play and will shape one's own experience. If someone had a negative association to, let's say, the smell of, of um, smoke, right? They'll, they'll smell that and it will create a felt subjective experience of maybe fear and apprehension and worry. But if let's say someone grew up where they would spend summers uh, by a campfire with their family and their loved ones. And so the smell of smoke for them gives them a feeling of like joy and peace and, and family. Um, you can see how the exact same external stimuli will cause two very different subjective experiences. I think as long as we understand that, uh, it, it's okay. But to completely ignore and deny one's subjective experience also is not healthy. The entire realm of psychology, uh, psychotherapy, one's ability to navigate life doing what you like versus doing what you don't like, working in a job that you're passionate about versus not, all of this requires one to have a certain degree of self-awareness where you enjoy being in a certain place or you, you're aware of how your thoughts and your emotions work, right? Mm -hmm. I would actually say we have a deficit uh, in self-awareness in our society. I think our society could do really well to develop a certain level of introspection and, and, and acceptance of the things that arise internally. I fully agree. Um, and to our listeners, if, if you want to learn more about a scientific approach to, to introspection, the Galileo Commission report is, is a wonderful resource on this. It actually proposes a potential way of systematically exploring our direct experiences. I was so fascinated with that and how it promoted this idea of introspection as a research method. Um, I want to take this opportunity to come back to, to the idea of wholeness because we talk about perceptions. Um, but I also feel many times we, we limit what counts as a valid perception. So we think, you know, of the sense of seeing, smelling, touching, whatnot. Um, but if we come back to the idea that you put forward, um, that, that we are more than our bodies, there's more to us. Well, perhaps there's more to the things we perceive and, you know, we might perceive things, as I was saying, it made sense on a, I don't even have the words for it, but perhaps, you know, somewhat cliche on a heart level, but not on a mind level. Um, it might be worth looking more into that. Like in your experience, how could, how could that even look like? How could we integrate that into our lives? Yeah, this is excellent. It's so good that you're mentioning that. Um, I feel like there's a couple layers I want to address first. Uh, there may be listeners who come from that Western uh, scientific dominant model. And I'm just going to state outright this idea of consciousness, the hard problem of consciousness, the hard problem of, of science in many ways, is the, the question boils down to this. Does, is consciousness an epiphenomenon of the firings of neurons in your brain? Meaning, is it a product of it? Or does consciousness exist a priori to? Meaning, does it exist independent and before the, the physical structure of the brain? Um, for the listeners who are hard materialist scientists, I will just tell you right now, I'm of the camp that consciousness exists independent of the physical brain. There's, 
I think, a significant body of evidence to support that. And I would point listeners to a book called The, the End to Upside Down Thinking by Mark Ober. Uh, and also, as it pertains to death, Leslie Keen, or I think Leslie Kane, I forget how to pronounce her last name, has a book called Surviving Death. I would recommend those two because those two do a good job at compiling some of the best scientific evidence, and I truly mean, truly mean scientific evidence, um, analyzed by statisticians um, and are highly validated. Best evidence to support the fact that consciousness does in fact exist independent of the body. Now, with that as the premise, I will say, I will add to what you said. If consciousness exists independent of the body, there has to be a means of perceiving things, right? There has to be a way, a way to receive information and then communicate that information to other forms of consciousness. And I think that is a realm that needs to be explored more. We would use the word intuition, maybe, for ways of receiving information independently of the body. Um, some people might use extrasensory perception. That's sort of an antiquated term now, ESP, or psychic. Um, I think that word, particularly psychic, is heavily loaded, and people will may judge that word. But um, suffice it to say, I totally agree with you. There are ways of receiving information that don't require the five physical senses. And it can be trained. <laughs> Lots to think about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was thinking that, um, so about the scientific evidence that you mentioned, uh, Mark Gober's book is what actually set me on the path of investigating more of this. So, you know, I... I do owe him quite a lot. It's quite an excellent book. I keep recommending it as well. Um, we, we will have all resources that you mentioned in the show notes. Um, in my personal experience, um, I found that seeing this evidence, oh, that there's actually multiple layers coming through. So for one, um, I love that you mentioned, you know, this is, you know, this is actual science. Uh, there's statisticians that analyze the data, which I think is incredibly valuable. Um, and at the same time, I would like to make the comment that this this also reflects our bias towards valuing numbers, quantitative data a little bit more than, you know, qualitative data, our own experience and other people's experiences. I see you nodding. Do you want to share more yes. on that? You're so right. And that's just an example of how, uh, you know, even for those who do value the subjective experience, we do have this bias towards objectifying and measuring. And some of the most powerful things, some of the most relevant things in life can't be measured and cannot be objectively seen. Take the feeling of, of love, right? The feeling of care and compassion, kindness, right? These are values intrinsic to being a human that are hard to objectify. And the only thing that really matters when it comes down to it is whether it's felt, right? especially for those things that I mentioned. Uh, so I, I am nodding in the sense that, um, yes, there were statisticians, but that does not invalidate all the case stories in that book uh, of people who had 
powerful subjective, subjective experiences. Also, take, for example, people who have near-death experiences. You can't measure what they experienced, but you can see the effects of their experience. Mm -hmm. Personalities change, healing occurs, they become for the most part, more open and grateful and kind as a human being. And I would say that's, you know, that's plenty of evidence to show that there was a powerful experience there. I love that you mentioned near-death experiences because people usually, to my knowledge, people usually come out of that better, more loving, more committed to being kind. Um, and I think it might dovetail with, with this idea of uh, that you put forward of disease being a manifestation of the way we hide our wholeness, the, the wholeness of spirit. It seems that we, we tend to go towards that loving space um, after an experience that shakes our world to that extent. And these are quite an extreme case. But is this more or less what you think might happen in the case of disease as well? Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, um, I think this idea of how do we define disease is important. It's easy to say disease is something to do with the body not working, right? Going back to that. But I also think it has to do with belief, belief systems, emotions, and thoughts. People will often experience something in their physical body and want that addressed and not realize that their train of thoughts, their emotions and their beliefs may have contributed to that. Or if not contributed to, that there might be a very strong correlation with their inner experience and what's happening to their physical body. In my experience, the disease offers the person an opportunity to recognize what's happening on an inner level, that they might believe that they're unworthy. Let's say someone who has something with a skin condition, maybe a wart on their face or, or something disfiguring. That's a relatively easy thing to see um, in that it's how you show yourself to the world. It's how the world sees you. It's how you relate to uh, all those around you and people make judgments based on how you, your physical appearance looks. And so there is often a, a belief system or a fear associated with a disfigurement of the face or something wrong with, with your appearance. Um, oh, people are not going to like me or people are going to think I'm ugly or how can I go out in public? Um, and I find that there are, there's great symbolism in the way that a disease will manifest. Um, uh, Louise Hay did a great job. I, I don't, I think she started the work. I don't think she has a comprehensive view of it, but she started the work in, in recognizing that there is in fact symbolism to how diseases manifest. Um, another example, um, I'll, I'll share with you a personal example, actually. Uh, I had a, back in residency, I had a, a gentleman come into the emergency room who had a sudden stroke. The right side of his body stopped working, completely paralyzed. I started talking to him. We scanned his brain, first of all, and we found that there was no bleed. 
that caused the stroke and there was no clot. So now we're like, well, why is he paralyzed? And why did it happen so suddenly? And I remember the next day in the hospital, I started talking to him and I told, I told him, okay, tell me everything about what happened and how it happened. He said he was at home having a conversation with his wife. Uh, he suspected that she might've been cheating on him because he was seeing things in the house that didn't belong there. And he confronted her. She got quite upset and in fact confirmed that she was cheating on him. And in that moment, he felt such rage that he raised his right arm to punch her. Uh, but he had, he was raised in a household that said never hit women. And so he never did in his whole life. But in that moment, he felt like he was about to. And right as he was about to strike her is when his stroke happened. And then his whole right side became paralyzed. And they both recognized, oh, this might be a stroke. And she drove him to the emergency room. When we rec when I heard that, I saw, okay, there's no coincidence here. At the moment that he was about to break that belief system of his and hurt his wife, he caused this weakness to occur. I asked him if he'd be open to speak to a psychologist uh, that we have in the hospital and work through some of the anger uh, that came up around this circumstance. And he said, yes. The psychologist worked with him not three days and his weakness completely resolved. Huh. Nothing happened in his lab work or his brain or anything that we could uh, measure in our tests. And yet this weakness resolved. And, and it, it truly was paralysis. And I share this story to tell you, we take for granted the power the mind has over the body. And the symbolism of him essentially unconsciously causing this weakness to prevent himself from doing something that he didn't believe in or, or would regret. Um, what that did, and this goes back to your question, sorry for the roundabout story. It gave him the opportunity, that disease of the paralysis of the stroke gave him the opportunity to recognize the deep-seated beliefs and fears that he had uh, of losing his wife, of feeling inadequate as a husband, and of potentially uh, breaking this belief of not, not hitting women, that men who hit women are evil and bad. In this, and I feel like in Alice's case, with her breast cancer, there's deep symbolism to uh, cancer in that location, but we can save that for another call. Alice recognized through the course of this disease that she wasn't broken, that there was nothing wrong with her as an individual. And I, I even think that over the course of her disease, she chose to identify with a deeper part of who she was rather than the body. And that's why I think disease is such a good opportunity. It is that veil that covers our wholeness, but it allows us, it's the avenue through which we can traverse to recognize who we really are. And if there's one thing I could share with the listeners here, if, if you or a loved one are going through something physically or mentally or emotionally that you would label a disease, consider it as an opportunity. 
It's something to be walked through, not to be ignored or quote unquote fixed. But really, you can discover a deeper part of yourself by acknowledging that. It, it does require... I, I, I have multiple things landing now. So what you're saying is very reminiscent. Um, and perhaps you want to elaborate on that because you, 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 do, you know the world traditions better than I do. But it sounds very reminiscent of shamanism and this idea of you are in relationship with everything. So why not your disease as well? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there is lost wisdom in the Native American traditions, um, lost to some, uh, not all, where we relate to the world as very deeply involved with our own lives. I remember um, I used to spend some time uh, when I was much younger with the Lakota, and they would often, I remember one of one of the Lakota elders, um, uh, we were getting ready for a sweat lodge at one point, and there was a, uh, a raven or a, um, uh, some, some bird, I think it was a crow or a raven, and he turned to it, and he acknowledged it, and he said, hello, brother. And, and he said uh, something to the effect of, thank you for being here with us during our ceremony. That was the first time that I saw someone actively engage with an animal intelligence, acknowledge it, respect it, honor it as being a, a part of this play that's happening, that our, our life experience. And I've found myself starting to do that more and more in the coming years. If there's a, a hawk that flies above, if there's, um, you know, a, a, an animal that crosses your path, acknowledge it, honor it, and, and recognize there's also consciousness in that too. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because I feel there used to be a way where people truly understood the symbolism of the things that occurred, uh, whether it's animals or even weather, right? A big thunderstorm or a rain, uh, like recently, I live in California. We had a massive wildfire, um, the Fairview fire that burned 20,000 acres. We had a, a thunderstorm just not too long ago that stopped the fire. There's so much symbolism there because some people might say a thunderstorm is a bad thing, but for the people in this area, that was a godsend. It was a blessing. It was like, thank God for the rain, you know, and imagine what happens in the collective unconscious of humanity over time when we relate to certain symbols like rain or a river or the ocean. It, those symbols start to become such a deep part of what it means to be human. And I think that we've forgotten how to work with those symbols. Um, uh, one last thing that I'll share. Um, I had a couple of uh, family friends that were going through a very big breakup and they needed to come to terms with the fact that a, a, that a particular relationship came to an end. And so what I suggested is they go to a river and they take something that represents that relationship. And when they were ready, 
they place that thing in the river and allow the river to take it away from them. And it's a small gesture, but it, it sends a message to the subconscious mind that says, yes, I am completing this and I'm allowing it to be taken away and washed in the waters and cleansed. I feel like using nature in this symbolic way is a powerful means to work with one's own psyche. And that's a, that's a technique. It's a tool. It's a style of living that um, has been lost throughout the years. And I'm, I'm hoping to bring it back in how I help patients relate to their own body in the same way. Thank you for, for sharing that. I feel that I feel the same way. And I feel we, we lost we, whenever I say we, it's more of a Western understanding really, because I, I can't speak globally and it's, it's definitely not the case everywhere, but the value of rituals um as you were mentioning but even acknowledging that or rather even having it into your belief system let's say that there's symbolism in things i feel that necessarily entails you know adopting a belief system where consciousness is a little bit more than 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 the body in the first place um like like we like we were just talking about um and I'd like to take this chance to um, shift gears a little bit because we talk a lot about um, consciousness being being more than than the body, according to to the to the evidence that we we have seen individually, um, or things we might have experienced. And you have this experience, this profound experience of being at the bedside of so many people, you estimate 1,000 at, at the moment that uh, uh, of their death. Um, and, you know, whether we like it or not, we're, we're all going to be there uh, one day. So I think this, this is a very valuable topic to, to discuss and um, take your brain on or your consciousness rather. Uh, what are the biggest insights that, that you've gained from these experiences? The most practical insight I'll offer, and then we can dive into some of the, the more esoteric, quote unquote, esoteric ones, is have a conversation with your loved one about your death. And specifically, if you're getting on in years, if you're above the age of 50 or 60, make sure your loved ones know what your preferences are. If your heart stops, do you want to have electric shocks and chest compressions? Do you want to be resuscitated? Or do you want to be allowed to, to go peacefully? Like if that's your time, then let me go. Um, if you can't breathe, uh, do you want to be hooked up to life support with a tube down your throat? What happens if you, if you are unable to come off life support? Do you want to be kept on life support indefinitely? Or do you want to be allowed to pass on? Um, if you can't eat on your own, would you want to be fed through a tube through your stomach? Um, if you can't breathe, are you okay with a tube being placed in your throat? These are questions that never, very, very rarely get addressed. I get patients coming to the ICU and we as physicians, we don't know what, what do you want to have done to you? Do you want us to continue to prolong your life even when it looks like you're, you have multi-organ failure and your limbs are falling off? Um, or do you want a, us to let you go? In my experience, 
Western society has divorced itself from the conversation around mortality. We are afraid to have that conversation. And what ends up happening is the families come unprepared. Uh, patients come unprepared. They don't know what they want. And for everyone to, to know, in Western medicine and most medicine, the default is keep the body alive as long as possible. In my personal experience, that's not always the most humane thing to do uh, or the most kind thing to do. And so if there's one thing I could ask is please be willing to have that conversation, know what your preferences are. If you're unwilling to have that conversation, ask yourself, why? What am I afraid of? And if it's truly, I'm afraid of facing my own mortality, I'm afraid of facing the fact that I might not be here or that my mom or father, husband, wife, brother, sister might die and I can't handle that, that is worth facing now rather than being caught off guard and then being forced to face it later on. Thank you. I think it also really speaks to our deep need for control and that is one of those things where I think we just you know we, we don't perceive any control but perhaps these preparations might help us restore a little bit of that um, you were mentioning more esoteric insights as well what would those be yeah uh, well this this is predicated on the idea that consciousness does in fact survive the physical body's death. Um, and I assume that people who have made it this far into the interview probably, probably agree with that. And if they don't, then, then that I'm glad that you've made it this far. Um, if we acknowledge that consciousness continues, then the question is how can we best prepare for the transition? Um, and this is where some element of metaphysics comes into play. In all the various spiritual and mystical traditions that I've come across, there's a theme that I've always seen, which is that when the body's not there anymore, one's subjective experience of reality is projected from within. And I'll break that up down a little bit. If we have a fear, if we believe that uh, we are guilty and we're going to go to hell and that is, that's just what's going to happen, then it could be that in the moment of death, we believe in that so strongly that we end up having an experience of being in a hellish place. Even though we're not actually there, our own minds generate a, a, a world, an experience uh, it's a projection, if you will, like, a, like onto a screen. Um, and we basically live inside a self-imposed prison where we punish ourselves. Uh, and it, you don't have to have the body to die to have that. Uh, we, we create our own self-imposed prisons in this world um, easily enough. The, the other side to that is that we believe that we will be met by our loved ones and our grandparents and we're going to heaven and it's it'll be a beautiful place and we will feel happy and joyful then we will have an experience very similar to that um, and this is why i think 
having this conversation of what can be objectively measured, what's true, what's not in the world of consciousness is a little bit um, harder to have because the question is, what, well, what is real comes up. But one thing is for sure, the power of the mind to create its own experience is tremendous. And to prepare for one's own death, I would say start to go within on a daily basis, develop a meditation uh, routine, or, or I have some clients that don't like the word meditation. So I say, find quiet time in the day where you can just close your eyes and go inside. If we go inside often enough, we will realize there are fears, resentments, uh, guilt, uh, anxiety, um, in addition to the beautiful things like joy and compassion and love. I would say face those things that cause pain. Um, if there's someone that you haven't forgiven, forgive them. Uh, or allow yourself to get to a place where you're more willing to do that. Um, if there's something that you resented in the past uh, or a regret, come to a place of acceptance. Because one of the most painful things I see in people who are dying, and I've seen plenty of people who tell me they regret such and such, and I try to work with them to heal that regret. Ultimately, they have to do it themselves, but it's a little sad and unfortunate when they do pass away and they've, they just hold on to that regret and they don't allow themselves to, to release that burden. Uh, so I would say don't wait till you're faced with your imminent death to start to do that kind of healing. I've, I've heard you um, recommend this before and also add that it's good to start this sort of practice as early as possible. Um, and I was wondering, might there be a thing as too early perhaps? Um, did you have experiences where you supported children through that, either the death of people in their life or perhaps even their own? Um, and do you have any suggestions for how to responsibly talk with children about that? It will inevitably come up um, at one point, especially given the possibility of an afterlife. Yeah, uh, such a good question. Such a good question. This has come up um, often with parents, let's say, who die, especially during the COVID pandemic. We had a lot of um, patients who were kind of young as the world would judge them, let's say in their, in their 40s or 50s, who um, passed away or were about to, and they had children that were young, um, anywhere from three, four years old to 12, 13, even 18, right, right before adulthood. Um, and the, in different hospitals, there are different regulations of how old you need to be to be able to come into the ICU. Some of the reasons for that are to protect the immune system of the child. Um, but other reasons are the emotional burden of seeing all the wires and tubes coming out of the nose and the mouth and everything. That's a little traumatizing to see your, your father, your mother look so strange. Uh, so what I often say is the parents and the family know the child best. There are some very mature children who could handle that. There are others who could not. And I often have a conversation first 
with uh, with the family. Do you think this kid, this child, could handle seeing their dad or their mom in this way? Um, for those who have the maturity to be able to handle that, there is great healing that can happen in being able to say goodbye um, and not having a regret or resentment when the child grows up saying, you didn't let me say goodbye to, my, to mom or dad, right? And so if it's possible to, I always do try to bring them in so that they can have that closure. There's also power in a child seeing death, especially in modern society. We like to uh, dress up death, right? We, we embalm the body and we put makeup and we put the body in a, in a nice dress and we have it in a casket and people come and, and it just looks like they're sleeping. I think there's power in seeing what an actual dead body looks like. The, the rigidity of the body, the, the, how it looks so pale and gray, um, how eyes look sunken. When we see those images of death, it hits us on a visceral level and it makes us realize, oh my gosh, I'm not immortal. I don't keep living forever and ever. That yes, there's an end to this life and it's important to acknowledge that because it's what makes us human. And so for a teenager to have that experience, I think is part of the match, part of maturing. It's part of growing up and it's very important. Thank you. I, I, I think that's really important for listeners who have children or come in contact with children to hear because I feel we often get really uncomfortable when the topic of death come, comes up around children and we don't we don't know how to approach it. I I I um I liked what you mentioned about the idea of realizing of having that visceral feeling that I am not immortal. Um and uh it it made me think um if we do assuming we do survive that. Do we survive that as we conceptualize of ourselves in this life? Is it just a part of ourselves? Is it something that we can't even conceive about our identity? What are your thoughts there? Any insights from spiritual traditions, from science, from <laughs> either camp? It's uh, that's really funny um, that I said we I am not immortal uh, because on another in a spiritual sense you could say I am immortal, right? Uh, consciousness continues and never ends. It, it just changes form, right? It changes ways of expression, but it, it, it consciousness just is. There's no uh, end to it, if you will. So in a certain sense, yes, we are all immortal, but the body is what is not immortal. The body will end. And when we identify with the body, that's where the, the challenge occurs. I would say, going back to children too a little bit, but answering your question, having the conversation of, well, what happens after death? What, what do we do? Who are we after death? Everyone has different belief systems. There are, uh, there's heaven and hell, there's um, purgatory, there's the idea of reincarnation, uh, transmigration. There are different um, ways to conceptualize the afterlife. But I think one thing is for sure, according to the literature and in my opinion, that there is in fact some afterlife. Uh, the, when the body dies, there is a continuation. 
And for me, the fascinating thing is, okay, if who I really am is this awareness, then to me, studying subjective experience, studying what it means to be aware and, and consciousness itself should be the one of the most interesting fields of science. Uh, assuming we acknowledge that the body will die, to me, consciousness is where it's at. That's the, that's the frontier that, that we should be exploring. Awareness and the mind, that which uh, continues beyond the death of the physical body. And there are many people, many scientists, who are rediscovering the wisdom of the spiritual traditions of the past because there are many spiritual traditions who have deeply studied consciousness and the mind. And I'm just going to put this out there to those who happen to be scientists. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Let's just go back to those spiritual traditions, maybe take apart the cultural trappings and the religious dogma, just take all that out and get to the core of what were they noticing with the mind and and see if we can start to put that in modern day terms. Oh, I fully agree. The way I think about it, I I completely agree. Scientists don't need to reinvent the wheel where you know where, where it might not be needed. And also the um, the scientific approach is valuable, like you say, because it provides a, a way of discerning dogma from what might actually be you know close to to truth to the ultimate truth whatever that might be um let's uh let's come back to something you were mentioning earlier in this interview because i think it it connects nicely with with this idea of what if we don't identify with the body what do we identify with uh, and that is your out-of-body experiences uh, and your, your experiences that you had in your life. Um, for our listeners, a quick reminder, Adam mentioned it as well, but out-of-body experiences or OBEs are basically the sense of having separated from the body and viewing it from the outside. This is the definition I got from the Sci Encyclopedia created by the Society for Psychical Research. So very worth checking out as a side note. Um, Adam, tell us about your OBE experiences. Yeah, uh, this, like I said, this is a personal experience and was one of the main reasons that I became fully convinced that uh, we're not just the body. And it shifted how I related to my patients. When you recognize that the person in front of you, the patient in front of you is not the body, then you're able to overlook the appearance of disease. Um, and I'll make a quick side note. When we round, which is to say in the mornings, we go and see all of our patients in the hospital um, and we talk about our patients to other providers, at least how I was trained in the medical field, there's a strong tendency to treat a patient as the disease. So that's the um, systolic heart failure in room 23, or that's the patient with pro prostate cancer in room you know, 24, whatever, which is a very, we do, I think we do that to remember who they are and, and it's an easy way to relate to what we're doing, but on a psychological level, it's kind of harmful because 
we start to see them as the disease. But if we can see them as that perfect whole essence that they are underneath the disease, it gives room and space for the disease to be healed uh, and maintain our relationship, right? If you are the disease, uh, then I'm always going to relate to you that way. And so on a deep level, psychologically, I don't allow space for you to become someone other than your disease. And so it perpetuates that dynamic. Um, but if you relate to the patient as the essence of who they are, then it, uh, it allows for the things of the body to change. Anyway, I just wanted to make that side note. When I was in um, college at the University of Rochester in my freshman year, I had a very interesting, spontaneous experience. I was in my dorm room uh, and I was falling asleep. And I started to feel that my body was buzzing. And sometimes... Um, if you stay awake long enough, like your mind stays awake, but you, the body is so tired, it will fall asleep. You, you'll realize the body gets paralyzed. That's called sleep paralysis or REM paralysis. Uh, and it'll feel like you're trapped in your body. Some people may have had that experience of sleep paralysis, but I found that I was in that state where my body was so tired. It, it already started to go into a REM sleep and it was paralyzed um, and I felt like it was buzzing after about a few minutes of this buzzing sensation, I heard like a, a snap or a click somewhere behind my head. I didn't know what that was, but it was a very loud pop. Um, and shortly before that pop, that buzzing had gotten so loud that it sounded like there was pots and pans, uh, and a lot of noise around me. And I wasn't sure if it was my roommate who came in or something else. Um, but then after that pop, everything got silent and I had this desire to get up and see whether someone had entered the dorm room. And so I, I lean forward and as I'm leaning forward, there's this big, it's like a white wall right in front of me. And I, I felt that's kind of strange. I felt like I had gotten up and maybe, um, uh, met the the side wall of my bed and so I was like all right let me just turn around so I, I go out to push the wall aside and turn my body like this and I realized what I thought was the wall was actually the ceiling and I was floating above the ceiling and I turned around and down below me maybe six or seven feet was my body in the position that it was in as I was falling asleep with the covers pulled up over it and the pillow and, and the window behind. And I was so struck by how odd this was. I thought, what is happening? Is that me? And it was so disorienting because it felt like I was floating on the ceiling and watching myself. And I didn't have a moment to process that before I felt like I was falling and kind of fell into my body and then I woke up and I opened my eyes and I was in the exact position that I had just seen myself in, in the covers. And I thought, what on earth just happened? What was that? And uh, I had heard about 
you know, afterlife stuff and, and, you know, the soul leaves the body just from my religious upbringing at home, but I never actually had an experience that would validate it. And that was the beginning of a ton of research, um, out of body experiences and what happened. And I remember reading several books on the subject matter. One of them was by Robert Bruce, which really helped me, but what I found out was many people actually had those same stages, a vibration stage, a buzzing, loud noises, and then a sort of a click or a pop in the area around their head, and then floating or coming out of their body. That was my very first experience. And, and after that, I realized I could actually control the stages with enough training and I could come out of my body, if you will, at will. Uh, and, and, uh, at first it was just around my dorm room. And then I realized I could go further and further and explore more. And I definitely did. And we can talk more about that maybe later on, but, um, it was fascinating and a totally exciting journey. And it's hard to talk to someone who doesn't believe that they are more than their body when, when you've had that experience and you know, without doubt that there is something in fact, beyond the physical. Adam, I think we need a part two. <laughs> we definitely need a part two. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I was about to say, uh, just before you mentioned that you were reading and you learned that, you know, other people had these exact stages as well, that someone listening to this might have had an OBE experience and hearing you describe it in such detail, it might help validate their own experience. Especially as we tend to kind of tiptoe around these experiences I feel like in the western society like to extremes like even pathologize them um so it's it's really reassuring to hear no 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 other people had these experiences as well it's 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 all good uh it it, it is something that happens yeah. and there's scientific research that supports that yeah it might make sense like objectively you know as far as objective reality goes um so that's awesome thank you it's so true one immediate uh consequence of these experiences is when I have a patient in, in the ICU who's intubated and sedated, I'm aware that they may be floating above their body. They may be watching what's happening. They may hear the conversations that are occurring in the room. And later on, when we lighten up sedation and they wake up, they may recall conversations that had when they were supposed to be unconscious or in a coma. And there are so many experiences. All you have to do is just type in near-death experience or out-of-body experience on YouTube, and you'll have thousands and thousands. But when, because of that, I will often kindly, compassionately share with the patient what has happened to them, even though they're deeply in a coma. Let's say they come in, it, it, they get urgently intubated, they're sedated, and, and now they're in the ICU. I'll go in, do my morning exam, and say, hello, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. Uh, you're here in the ICU at this hospital. This is what happened to you, and, and we're doing the best we can to uh, heal your whatever organ it is and, and let them know, you're, don't worry, you're in safe hands. And by the way, your wife or your husband or your kids, they come and visit you every day and they're here now. And for me, I do that because 
I know it's very possible that there's a, an aspect to their consciousness that can hear, that can be aware. And I often tell family members, even though they're in a coma, quote unquote, just hold their hand and tell them everything you want to tell them. Tell them all of your fears, your sadness, your regrets. Tell them how much you love them and how you'll be there for them. Uh, because there's an element of the consciousness that, that knows that they're there. So that's my recommendation to all those who, who might be in the ICU right now. Go ahead and talk to your loved one. Thank you. And it only goes to show that all these concepts you're putting forward, they're not just philosophical. They have very practical implications on, 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 on how you treat people. Uh, did you have uh, patients that woke up from comas and recalled um, things that you or other people told them? I did. Oh, that's awesome. I did. I have. And I've had patients tell me that when they were in the operating room, they remembered very specific conversations that the surgeons would have with the nurse. Um, I remember one of my patients saying how when he was in the operating room, he recalls the physician saying that he was going to go golfing uh, the next day and it was inviting one of the, was hitting on the nurse uh, and inviting her to come with him. Um, and he just thought that that was funny. And later on, the the nurse was dumbfounded. It was shocked that he remembered that because he was deeply anesthetized and sedated. So how could he know that? Uh, the, there's so many stories like that that occur. And we tend to, I think in medicine, we tend to brush it off saying, well, I don't know, maybe he heard it from someone else. Or we we try to find a rationalization that fits our um, worldview, but I've seen too much of that to to dismiss it. Um, I absolutely resonate with that. To to, to me, uh, dismissing so many cases, and um, we're gonna drop some resources in the description box for people who want to read about more cases like this. Um, but to me, dismissing it sounds like, you know making the data kind of fit into a theory that you already have about reality, which is the exact opposite to the way you should go about it scientifically, right? Because you're, you're supposed to adjust the theory based on the data that comes in and allow yeah. it to evolve. So that's awesome. Thank you, Adam, for giving us such um, con concrete and, and profound examples of, of, of how this, this plays out um, in the medical field. Um, the next thing I want to ask you, um, I'm, I'm very curious, and I'm sure our listeners are very curious as well, um, for someone with such deep education and practice um, on spiritual traditions and spirituality, how would you personally describe your spiritual beliefs and what is God to you? That is a very, um, it's a big question. Uh, well, I would say it's been a journey for me. It's been a very long journey, especially the spiritual journey. It's gone from a place of being um, less and initially about religion. And now it's becoming less and less about religion in the dogmatic sense and more and more about spirituality, which for me is, um, I, had a, I had a teacher, I have a teacher who once told me that the, his definition of spirituality is not what happens in life, but the way we respond to what happens. 
And I love that because for me, that religion doesn't even need to play a role in any of that. Dogma doesn't even need to play a role. Really, it's about can we be more loving with one another? Can we be more kind and compassionate to, to others, but also to ourselves? As you said right at the beginning, we're all imperfect and we all make mistakes. Can we see that in one another and, in, and recognize moments of being triggered or angry or upset or judgmental and, and just acknowledge it, take a deep breath and decide to choose again. Decide to choose, you know what? Today, I'm not going to respond with anger and with judgment. Today, I'm going to recognize that maybe that person is having a bad day as well. And, and maybe they were raised to believe something that was maladaptive or unhelpful. Uh, maybe there are ways, there are traumatic experiences that that person had that makes them behave the way they do. Instead, I'm going to choose to respond with kindness and love. So I would say my spirituality is a spirituality of love. Uh, it's, it's how I respond to the world and to life. Um, I'll also say, say this again, might be a much longer conversation, but for those who are interested, the term non-dualism for me, um, comes up and it's the idea of recognizing the world that we're in appears to be filled with things that are separate from, from itself separate from one another. Christina, you're out there separate from me and I'm here and we're separate from other human beings around us. There's a lot of built-in duality in this experience of life. Non-dualism is this path towards recognizing fundamentally underneath it all, the duality is an illusion. Really, it's all about oneness. Uh, and the journey towards that recognition is, for me, uh, um, a spiritual journey. Oh, and your question about God. It's a big one. God is a very loaded term, and <laughs> I tend not to use it with most people. Uh, I think there are many ways to talk about God and use other words like source or spirit. And I would, pref I preferentially use those words, but I'll just say, I don't think God is a, uh, an 80 year old man with a long white beard sitting on top of a, of a cloud. But <laughs> that image, uh, is I think inaccurate at best. I would say if I had to define God, I would say God is the, the the essence of all reality. It is a, the substrate, the, the fabric of existence itself. And so I feel like to personalize it or to anthropomorphize it, it's not really an accurate portrayal of, of the, the profundity of, of that, that word. And I'll leave it there. Adam, something that um, I'm always wondering when um, uh, when science or you know something solidly grounded in science such as medicine and spirituality are blended, do they ever come into conflict in your experience? Does your ex expertise in medicine and your expertise in spirituality ever you know ever come in conflict or lead you in different places? Um. Not really, because I've learned to live life in a way where I can blend the two 
really well. I will say that at the beginning of my medical career, I was very frustrated with the way that we went about practicing medicine. Uh, and uh, it's a little cliche at this point, but um, we've, you've heard that term of it's not health care, it's sick care. Um, I think there's a little bit of truth to to that, which is this, which is to say modern medicine will often wait to the end stage of a disease before it will intervene. And when it does intervene, it's usually surgery or some form of pharmaceutical. I have nothing against surgery and pharmaceuticals. I find that they're immensely powerful tools for healing. But why do we wait to the very, very end? Why aren't we having conversations around how to live a healthy life? Um, why isn't the vast majority of medical education more about nutrition and lifestyle and diet, right? Uh, food is medicine. There's something so powerful in just learning to first live healthily instead of studying the end stages of pathological processes in the body. Of course, that's important. But if all of medicine is about that, then it misses what it means to thrive in this body. And in my experience, there's been more and more of a shift recently with integrative medicine, functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, different branches that essentially reflect a desire, a collective desire to explore what does it mean to live more healthily. Uh, at the beginning of my medical career, that was the biggest conflict between my spirituality and my practice of medicine was this inability to acknowledge living a, a healthy life and bringing in spirituality. Why aren't we talking to people about their beliefs and their fears and, and, and how that might be contributing to what's happening to their body? I feel like you've uh, you've already answered this next question, but I want to see if there's anything else uh, that you might want to share on this. So if we imagine ourselves like it's been 50 years from today, right? So in 50 years from now, what how do you hope that healthcare will look like? You mentioned a couple of things such as more focus on lifestyle and nutrition. Is there something else there that you would like to see changed? Lovely question, really lovely question. And a lot can happen in 50 years. Uh, I would say more than lifestyle and nutrition, because that's already starting to happen. If we can finally, as a, uh, as a scientific society, acknowledge that we are more than the physical body. If we can acknowledge consciousness um, as a priori or independent of the physical and truly put effort into studying it and learning what is the interplay between the physical and consciousness? Uh, how do they relate to each other? How do they influence each other? There's so much we don't know about the mechanics, for lack of a better word, of this uh, relationship between consciousness and, and, and physicality. I think there's so much to be explored there. Um, in my experience, disease, quote unquote, 
starts at the level of the mind. It starts at that level of consciousness and then begins to express itself through emotions and thoughts and then eventually through the physical body. A society that is truly geared towards health and healing will not only focus on the body, it will start to put a lot of focus at the level of the mind and consciousness and work there first. That would be my biggest wish for the direction of medicine. That's awesome. And while well, we have the side to the future, um, if you could be remembered for just one thing, what would you like that one thing to be? One thing would be for people to truly know that there's nothing wrong with them. For people to truly feel it, to feel that they are loved, to feel that they're cared for, and to feel that at the core of their being, they are completely whole. And that everything that they see in their life that they might label as broken, everything that they see the level of their uh, relationships and everything that they see the level of their body that they would say is broken. Just remember, that's all surface level. At the deepest level of who you are, you're whole. You don't need anything outside of you to fix you. You're already there. That would be my biggest message. That's wonderful. And lastly, Adam, for people who want to learn more about you and about your work, um, where can they find you? online that's so nice and physically <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you i think it's really nice of you to to give me that opportunity um you can check uh out my clinic at rbiclinic.com that's our uh, family institute my mother my sister and i we um, take all of these principles that i've been talking about and we um help people with neurological conditions um get better you can learn more about my personal uh life and my message at adamrisby.com that's my personal website and if you're ever in uh the san diego area in california let me know drop me a message i i'm always up for coffee and lunch that's awesome adam this has been such a lovely conversation and i sincerely hope we're gonna get a part two to this if you would like to come <laughs> on the show again but you know no pressure <laughs> thank you so so much Uh, this was lovely. Um, are there any last thoughts that you would like to share before we hop off? Uh, just to say thank you for the work that you're doing. I feel like your podcast, your, your YouTube videos, you're a pioneer in everything that we've been talking about. You're helping to um, bring about a, a renaissance, an awakening in our society to these topics. So thank you. I'm very grateful. Keep it up. Thank you so much, Adam. That, that is so kind of you. And thank you so much for your work. It is, it is incredibly valuable. Um, and to our listeners, Adam has uh, a lot of podcasts that he's been featured on. So it's a great honor to have him here and also go and listen to him everywhere. With that being said, this was Dr. Adam Rizvi. Adam, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Welcome.